Um, all right, a quick word. Um, not that it's, it may not be a parent, um, real parent to you right now, but there are a lot of little people back there. I mean, a ton of them. Um, uh, we're not good at a lot of things at our church, but we're good at the baby thing. And, um, uh, and so I, I, with that word, I just wanted for a, just a quick second to say, um, we love these people. And because we love these people, we love them being in here. Uh, so it, it, for some of us, uh, having our kids in here creates a good, immense anxiety. Uh, for others of us, our kids being back there gives us immense anxiety. And let me just say up front, really loud and clear, both are completely appropriate. Because we love your kids, we want the best place for them. And you get to determine that. Isn't that great? Um, so if you have kids around you that are getting on your nerves, that's on you. Um, all right. Um, I just wanted to say that. Um, uh, you will see in your bulletin um, uh, 61 verses. Uh, we are not reading 61 verses tonight. Um, we will read uh, some of those as we go uh, throughout the sermon. Uh, but tonight you will see that pretty much all, almost all those 61 verses um, are spoken by a man named Stephen. And if you've not been with us, uh, even if you have been with us the last several weeks, we haven't been in Acts um, since November uh, because of uh, doing Christmas things. And then we had a couple guests the last couple weeks. Um, so now we're back there. So let me just give a, a little bit of recap. Um, in Acts chapter 6, we were introduced to a need in the church. And the need was that the, the um, Greek-speaking Jewish widows uh, were not being attended to properly. Uh, the apostles at the time said um, they, they knew that this, this need needed to be taken care of, um, but they weren't the ones who were going to do it. They were committed to preaching and to praying, so they uh, created a, a team of people that were the first deacons uh, who took care of this physical need among uh, these women in the church. And uh, one, of, uh, one of the people on the team was this guy named Stephen. And uh, in case you thought, well, if, if, if you were uh, full of the Holy Spirit and you were full of wisdom, um, but you were a good speaker and you liked to pray, then you got to be an apostle. Uh, but if you were just a doer kind of person, then surely you couldn't be any good at preaching. Well, what we're going to find out tonight uh, is that Stephen was a deacon who was a, a great preacher. Uh, he is going to give an amazing sermon uh, that we will look at tonight. Um, but while he started his preaching ministry, um, people started throwing shade on him. People were hating on him because uh, he was saying things that really got underneath their skin. And the things that got underneath their skin are, are what, what Stephen thought um, to be an error among the Jews. And so we'll look at that real um, intently tonight. So we really see his response uh, to the shade that was getting thrown on him. So um, let me pray and we'll get started. Uh, Father in heaven, um, Whatever I say really won't do anything unless it is from your spirit. So, Lord, we are completely dependent upon you. Uh, Lord, uh, I am completely dependent on you as the preacher. And, Lord, these people, these friends of mine, these brothers, these sisters are dependent on you for change in their own hearts. And so, Lord, I pray that we would uh, throw ourselves uh, wholly at you. And, Lord, that you would surprise us. Lord, that you would make life spring up in places that we didn't think were possible. And so, Lord, do that in our midst this evening. In Christ's name, amen. Um, why do people do what they do? What determines uh, who you are and what you're about? 
Um, why do some people believe in God and some people don't? Why do some people love poetry and some people are addicted to substances and some people both are true? Um, why does anyone like Pepsi is what I want to know. Uh, how can anyone resist a donut? You know, the big questions in life. And what we see is, is if we kept asking these kind of questions, I mean, even things like, why do some people get emotional worship and some people don't? Why do some people work sick and some people push through? And what we see if we kept asking these kind of questions is that we would discover is that people sin and people do beautiful things. Human beings are mysterious. And human beings are hungry. We're hungry creatures. We're full of yearning. We're not static. We pursue what we desire. We seek what we think will heal our pain. We resist and we avoid things that hurt or that seem boring. But what lies underneath all these desires, all these choices, and all these pleasures, all these pains? What's, what is that? Well, some people call it a worldview. Well, what's a worldview? Well, a worldview is comprised of all of our beliefs and our attitudes, our feelings, our values that provide an organizing way for us to view reality. Our worldview frames our answers to questions like, what's real? What matters? Is there a God? If so, what is he like? What's it mean for human beings to flourish? How are things supposed to be? Why is the world so messed up? What would solve all the problems in our world? And where is this world headed? Well, the answer to all those questions you would find to be someone's worldview, the way in which they construct and frame reality. But see, our answers to these questions, they really set the agenda for our lives. You don't have to be philosophical. You don't have to be reflective. You don't even have to be religious in order to have a worldview. See, a worldview is just like a set of glasses. It's the lens through which we see the world. It provides a grid by which we orient ourselves in this world. It's how we interpret it, our everyday experiences. Yet, if you were to accurately and honestly name your worldview, you would notice that it would form a narrative or a story. It would not form a list of propositions or principles. There would be an order and a plot by which you would see that you make your choices. For instance, um, a high schooler. If a high schooler th believed that, um, that it was wrong for him to cheat or her to cheat, but then he or she lived a narrative that goes something like this, that they lived a narrative that says one must, be, must get good grades in order to get into a good college, in order to get a good job, in order to marry a beautiful person, in order to drive a nice car, and if that's the way they viewed their life, if that's the story of, the, of their life, they are very, very likely to cheat. Or, or put it another way. Here's another way that stories kind of tell us who we are. Um, some of us, one of us might say, um, our grandparents were immigrants. 
And you say, well, th they worked 15 hours a day and that everyone in your family works really hard and that's why you work really hard. Well, you see what that is. That's a narrative. You're living in a narrative. If you think that you came from a family of a long line of losers, then you're destined to consider yourself to be a loser. See, stories interpret reality. And God seems to be fully aware of the power of story. That's why the Bible has a plot. It's got this narrative structure that I talked about in the announcements. This narrative structure that, that, that God really did create a, a good and glorious and beautiful world. And then through a fall the, 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 that we vandalize this beautiful world. And God could have turned his back on that world, but he didn't. Instead, he sent his redeemer, his son, who would redeem all things. And one day, all these things will be set right. Everything will be restored, just like we sang. And what's interesting in our text, in Acts chapter 7, is that Stephen responds to the accusations of him being a blasphemer. I mean, that's what they said when they started throwing shade on him. They started throwing shade on him because he was interpreting the big things about Judaism differently than they were used to them being interpreted. And instead of responding with things like, oh, here, count one, here's what I got to say. Count two, here's what I have to say. Stephen doesn't do that. Stephen just tells the story. But the way in which he told it, when he had the law and he had the temple and he had Moses, he started drawing lines from temple to Jesus, law to Jesus, Moses to Jesus. And that's what got him so ticked off. That's why in verse 1, you'll see, chapter 7 there in your bulletin, it seems, why are these things so? Things refers back to his charges of blasphemy. And in this story, he tells God's story. He tells the story for which these religious leaders should have been living into, but they didn't. And so really, I want to show us three plot lines in chapter 7. The first plot line is that God's story reveals his presence with us. The second plot line is that God's story reveals our unfaithfulness. And the third one, God's story reveals his love for us. So his presence, our unfaithfulness, and his love. That's where we're headed. So in this story, in Acts chapter 7, he kind of tells it in chapters with these successive characters. He's got Abraham in verses 2 to 8. Then he's got Joseph in 9 to 19. He's got Moses. This is the biggest one because this is who he was talking about, who Stephen was talking about the most in 20 to 44. And then finally we've got David and Solomon in 45 to 53. And nothing that he tells them about Moses, Abraham, Joseph, David, and Solomon were things that these Jewish leaders didn't know. That's who he's really talking to here. They knew everything that he was saying. But somehow, these Jewish leaders had missed the forest for the trees. They knew the facts, but they didn't know the story. To the people he's talking to, the, the, the Jews, the, these Jews, the temple and the law and their memory of Moses, that they had become more important than God himself. 
And this was especially true for the temple and the land because they had grown to think that God could only be found in the temple and in that land, but they missed the fact that God was never to be located in a building or in a certain land. He was always with his people. That's what JT read for us earlier. And that's what Stephen recounts to them. Look at verse 2. In verse 2, you see that Abraham is in Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia is more or less modern-day Turkey. Okay? That's where God was with Abraham in Mesopotamia. Then in verse 9, God's with Joseph. Where is Joseph? He's in Egypt. That's a long way from Mesopotamia. Now look at verse 33. God appeared to Moses in a burning bush. You know where that happened? Not the promised land. In Egypt. See what God had done. Oh, now look at verse 44. Then in verse 44, uh, you see that God is with his people in this thing called the Ten of Tabernacles. And Ten of Tabernacles is what, where God's presence was in their, in their 40 years of wilderness wanderings. You know the story. Uh, at least if you've seen the Prince of Egypt. Um, that uh, Moses and the people of God, that they crossed the sea. And before they got to the promised land, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Well, those 40 years, they had this thing called the Ten of Tabernacles. And you know what that Ten of Tabernacles was? It was never in the promised land. So God's presence had always been with his people. God's presence, in fact, was pretty much around the whole Fertile Crescent. Fertile Crescent is where he was present with his people. So clearly, God couldn't be contained in a building. Because he was with these people in all these different countries. See, you can't locate God like that. You couldn't in the Old Testament, which Stephen so astutely points out in all those verses. But neither could you locate God like that in the New Testament. So where is God's presence today? Where is it? Where are you going to find God? You still find God with his people. you still find God with his people. If that's where you're looking for God, you'll find him. Just get around his people. Let me read some verses. This is Ephesians 2.22. In him, you, use plural like y'all. In him, y'all also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16-17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Repetitive. 2 Corinthians 6.16 For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So what does this have to do with us today? That God's presence is with God's people. Well, it's got a lot to do with us. You know, March 24th, we become Hope Presbyterian Church. And on March 24th, we will not own a building. And so what makes a church legit is not whether it has a building. What makes a church legit is God's presence. So we need to change our vocabulary, don't we? See, you are the church. You don't go to church. 
You might go to a church building and attend worship like you are now, but don't make the mistake that Israel made and so many Christians still make, and it's this, to equate a church building as the locator of God's presence. Now, if a building can help a church be the church, then that's great. But a church doesn't need a building. Now, that's a word for us today. But let's play this out a few, several years down the road for us as a church. Perhaps God does give us a building one day. Perhaps in our LLC or whatever they call it, a 501c3, I don't know. There is within that a building. Well, if that's the case, you know what's really easy to raise money for in a church? A building. It's tangible. It's something that we as church members that we really benefit from when we have our own building. We begin to use it for what we want to use it for. But you know what's really hard to raise money for in a church? The poor. Ministry to those who don't go to our church. But that's the ministry of the church. That's what the church is. The church is a mighty movement when it taps into God's presence. But churches, and we can see this in in Western Europe. You can see it in other parts of our country. You can see it in parts of our city even. That a church can move from being a mighty movement to being a monument easier than you think. And a church can move from being a monument to being a mausoleum really quick after it becomes a monument. So you see that God's presence is with God's people. It's not tied to a locale, but it's tied to persons. That's the story of God's presence with us. I want you to look at the story of how the story of God reveals our unfaithfulness. Stephen is laying waste to these folk. And look at verse 9. Verses 9 and 10, he's trying to, uh, to, to show them a, a, a wart in their past. And he tries to show them the, the, the 12 patriarchs. The 12 patriarchs are Joseph and his 11 brothers. Those form what is called in much of the Old Testament the 12 tribes of Israel. And in some ways, the, the, those 12 guys were, um, were heroes of their faith. And he wants to show them that their heroes really aren't all that heroic. In verses 9 and 10, he shows them that 11 of those 12 heroes are the ones who sold the 12th hero, Joseph, into slavery. That's a wart in their past. Then in verses 23 and 24, we get into Moses. And Moses, um, you know, he, uh, he was raised, uh, he was Jewish, but he was raised uh, in the Pharaoh's house. He was picked up by the Pharaoh's daughter and raised there and had all the benefits of being culturally Egyptian, but uh, by, by birth he was, um, he was a Jew. And he knew that his people, the Jews, that they were being held as slaves. And he didn't see them very much because he was kind of in the ivory tower of their culture in the Pharaoh's household. And he wanted to go visit them one day. And he was shocked at how poorly they were treated. And one of them was mistreated so badly that Moses lashed out in anger and he murdered one of the Egyptians. So this is their hero, a murderer? Not so much of a hero. Look at verses, and then verses 36 through 41, we still talk about Moses. He's still talking about Moses here. And he's talking about how Moses has now, he's built this resume to elicit immense amount of trust from these people. He's led them out of Egypt. 
He's made sure that they're fed. He's built this tent of tabernacles that God's presence is with them. He's going to go get God's law on top of Mount Sinai. But when he goes up to get the law from Mount Sinai, what are the people doing at the base? Do you guys know? They were worshiping a golden calf. That God's people had rejected Moses' leadership, and they rejected God for that matter. This is part of their past. And then, uh, to add insult to injury, we get to verse 51. Go to, everybody go to 51. Let's read 51 to 53 together. Moses is at the, or uh, Moses, Stephen's at the end of his sermon. And here's what he says. He's clearly not trying to flatter them. Here's what he says. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your forefathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, the righteous one being Jesus. You have received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So it's one thing to reject Joseph. It's one thing to reject Moses. It's a whole other thing to kill the righteous one. This was their unfaithfulness. Now this council, these religious leaders who are hearing Stephen's charges, they did not ask, hey Stephen, let us know how you think we're doing. They didn't ask for that. But Stephen had to take this chance to show them that their history was not as sparkly as they had remembered. And that's what God's story does. God's story doesn't gloss over or rewrite the seedy and the unsavory parts of who we are. God's story is not about God looking around and finding you or finding a people that were so lovable that he couldn't help but love them. God's story with his people in the Old Testament with Israel and now with his church is that God's presence remains with his people in spite of their sin, in spite of their unfaithfulness. So the first thing we got to get straight is that God doesn't always convict us of our sin in an isolated way. If the only way that you think conviction is going to be brought up in your life is through self-realization, then you've got a really narrow view of how God exposes sin. God used Stephen to expose the ways of these religious leaders and how they had failed God. God used the prophet Nathan in the Old Testament to expose King David of his sin of adultery. God used Peter to uncover the sin of his hearers in Acts 2, then again in Acts 3, and then again in Acts 4. So that means that God might use someone else to expose your sin. Now, it might be a friend, a mentor, a son or daughter, a spouse. And God can get creative. But the word for us this evening is to give the green light to voices in our lives, a voice other than our own, to expose our sinful ways. So what do we do when our sin is exposed? Well, the easy answer here is to repent. That's the easy thing. Now, it might be a simple answer, but it's not easy to do. 
See, it's a miracle to be able to confess our sin when we're confronted. And here's why. The program settings of your heart, the program settings of my heart, are hardwired to either respond with an excuse to our sin or to deny it altogether. See, when you give an excuse, you're agreeing that something's wrong, but you're just trying to justify it. You say things like this. I'm just being honest. My personality, blah, 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 blah. I didn't mean to do it. I misunderstood you. I make mistakes. Nobody's perfect. How about this one? We have a communication problem. Friends, those are excuses. But sometimes we don't make excuses when we're confronted. Rather, we just flat out deny the presence of sin altogether. What we do is we get defensive or we shift the blame onto someone else. This is what Adam and Eve did. God confronts Adam and Eve about their sin. And you know what they did? You know Eve blamed? The serpent. You know Adam blamed? Eve. And we do the same thing. See, friends, you being a sinner is part of your story. You can try to rewrite it to make your story look shimmering white. You do it so your reputation is what you so long for. But you can't excuse your way out of your folly. You can't defend your way toward perfection. The healthiest thing that you can do and the healthiest thing I can do is to say my life is a mess and I'm responsible for it. But the good news is that this isn't the end of the story. Yes, our unfaithfulness is real. Yes, Stephen swings a really big truth stick at these guys. But what we also see is God's love for his people here in Acts 7. And the first thing that I noticed in reading through this passage again and again this week was just how indifferent Stephen was about himself. You barely find a first-person singular pronoun in that whole chapter, I or me. Tough to find. His sights are set squarely on proclaiming Christ. He's not at all concerned about saving his own neck. And yeah, he wants to proclaim God's presence with them. He wants to show them their litany of disobedience. But he wants to show them how much God loves them. And this is absolutely essential to his approach here. Because he knows if they don't see how much God loves him, they're not going to be able to acknowledge their sin. They need to be able to see that God didn't give up on making a people for himself because they rejected Joseph. That God didn't give up on them because they worshipped the golden calf. That God hadn't give up on them because they had made the temple too big of a deal. They need to see what you and I need to see again tonight. That God loves sinners. See, their rebellion, nor yours, nor mine, disqualifies us from the love of God. God's love is not dependent on our faithfulness. God's love for us is dependent on His faithfulness. And when you see that, it begins to unlock your ability to see your sin. Because your sin no longer can be the rap sheet that keeps you from being loved by God. Look at verse 59. 
Verse 59. As Stephen is taking his last breath, you see what he says there in verse 59? Lord, do not hold this sin against them. You know who that sounds like to me? Jesus. Jesus and uh, Luke chapter 23, verse 44. He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Jesus is asking for mercy for people who had scoffed at him, who had stabbed him, who had ignored him. And so Stephen learned, that, learned this from Jesus. He learned that God is about grace in, even in the most scandalous places. Stephen's been captivated by this story of God's love to him to a degree that at the end of his life, he's more worried about God's mercy towards his enemies than he is justice for himself. Wouldn't you love for the love of God to captivate you in that way? When you see God's love for you, though you're a sinner, to be able to extend grace to those who have hurt you? Because if you do, it reorients everything about your life. See, we spend most of our time boasting. And we spend our time boasting, I like to call it, in me mode. When you're in me mode, you say things like this, I can do it myself. God can't help me. I'm right. I'm strong. I've worked hard. I deserve it. Look how important I am. God owes me. Anybody relate to any of the me talk around here? But when you see that you're a sinner, while at the very same time seeing that Jesus loves you, you can say things like this. Christ can help me. Jesus is right. Look how great Jesus is. I have God's approval and I need Jesus. Friends, this week, uh, may we live in such a way that reflects this gospel story. That we see that God's presence is with us. We see that God loves us in spite the fact that we're a sinner. And when we do, it frees us from me mode and frees us to look away from ourselves unto Jesus. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for missing the point. <laughs> uh, these Jewish leaders weren't the only ones who missed the point. We do too. Lord, I pray you would rescue us uh, from being so concerned about our reputations that we would um, we'd be able to love those around us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.